Disney's Episode 7, Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. Hello and welcome to Disney, a podcast for Disney fans. I, as always, am your host, Christopher, and we are continuing with the Cinderella train this week with Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. If you missed the last episode, I covered the original animated Cinderella from 1950, and I also covered the live-action Cinderella from 2015, and I kind of compared the two and you know, uh, which one that I ultimately prefer. And it was a fun episode to do. And I mentioned at the end of that episode that this one would be covering Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. And I mentioned that I would talk about why it is that I'm skipping Cinderella 2. (laughs) Uh, So Cinderella 2 is not really a movie. It's like an anthology of shorts. And it's not very good. Like, I remember when I first watched it and just feeling like I wasted an hour and 20 minutes or however long that movie is. Like, I just felt like I wasted moments of my life. (laughs) It's just, I did not enjoy it. I really just did not find most of the stories compelling. I think there are three of them. I think there are three shorts in it. And there was one that I liked, which I will mention later in this episode, but most of them just really did not do anything for me, and I didn't find it interesting. And you don't need to have seen Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True, to watch Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, because this more or less ignores the events of the second movie, kind of just pretends that it didn't happen. And this is more a direct sequel to the first Cinderella movie than Cinderella 2 is. So I just felt like this is really a true sequel. This is really the proper direct sequel to Cinderella. Cinderella 2 really isn't needed. It's not very good. I don't really want to subject myself to watching it again. (laughs) So I just decided to skip ahead to Cinderella 3. So uh, before I move into my discussion of Cinderella 3, though, uh, I do have a little bit of Disney news for you. Not much this week, but a little bit. All right, first up comes from The Hollywood Reporter, and it says Disney's live-action Lilo and Stitch finds its Nani, Lilo's sister. But yeah, the article itself doesn't really go into much more detail about that. It really just talks about the production itself. It doesn't really talk much about the actress that has been casted. But um, that is definitely, uh, you know, that's that's an update. Uh, and I know that, like, some people are really upset with Disney with all of the live-action remakes that are coming out. For the most part, I don't really mind them because there's a certain excitement to me to see like a classic beloved story be interpreted in a new way. And that's just kind of exciting to me. Like I'm really, really excited about The Little Mermaid coming out soon. I'm looking forward to Snow White next year, you know, but I will say that for me at least, most of them have been a disappointment. Most of them have felt underwhelming and even to an extent unnecessary, but there have been a couple of gems. There have been a couple of live action adaptations that in my opinion are phenomenal. So, 
you know, we'll have to wait and see. This could be very good. So anyway, uh, also a teaser for the Marvels dropped, and I will link that teaser in the show notes along, of course, with the Hollywood Reporter article about Lilo and Stitch. But without further ado, uh, let's talk about Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. So this was a direct-to-video release. It did not get a theatrical release. A lot of Disney sequels, that is the case. In fact, one of the reasons why Frozen 2 was such a big deal is that it was the first time in Disney's history that an animated movie that was just Disney, not Disney Pixar or anything like that, but just Disney, it was the first time that an animated Disney movie had gotten a theatrical sequel. So most of the time when these uh, Disney sequels came out, these animated sequels, they were direct to video as this one was. And uh, this was released on February 6th, 2007. And uh, it had several writers. I apologize in advance if I mispronounce any of these names. Uh, it was written by Dan Berenson, Margaret Heidendry, Colleen Ventimia, and Eddie Guzelian. And again, I'm probably butchering some of those names. <laughs> I'm so sorry if I am. Uh, directed by Frank Neeson. And our cast is Jennifer Hale as Cinderella, Tammy Tappan as Cinderella's singing voice, C.D. Barnes as the prince, Susan Blakesley as Lady Tremaine, Tress McNeil, McNeil, I'm not sure, as Anastasia, uh, Leslie Margarita as Anastasia's singing voice, Rusty Taylor as Drizella and Fairy Godmother, playing two roles there, uh, Andre Stoka as the king, Holland Taylor as Prudence, Rob Paulson as the Grand Duke, and Jack, another, uh, you know, somebody else there that's playing double duty, <laughs> uh, Corey Burton as Gus, and Frank Welker as Lucifer. And the music in this movie is done by Joel McNeely, and the original songs are written by Alan Zachary and Michael Weiner. So the film synopsis is, like I said, this is a direct sequel to Cinderella. It really just completely ignores the events of Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True. So a direct sequel to the original Cinderella movie, when Lady Tremaine steals the fairy godmother's wand to change history, it's up to Cinderella and her mice friends to restore the timeline and reclaim her happy ending. So with this being kind of a smaller release, a direct-to-video release that did not get a major theatrical release, in fact, I've talked to some Disney fans about this movie that didn't even know it existed, believe it or not. So, you know, this isn't like a major release, really. Uh, and with that being said, there's really not a whole lot of trivia about it, but there is some, just not as much as there has been for a lot of the movies that I've covered on this podcast so far. Uh, but as always, I will link the IMDb link in the show notes. I will put that in the show notes for you because I'm not including all of the trivia here, but, you know, just the trivia that I found the most interesting. Uh, so the cast of this movie actually reprises their performances from the second movie. So pretty much all of the cast in this movie that's playing their respective characters are reprising those performances from Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True, even though, as I said, this movie is mostly ignoring the events of that movie. This is also the first Disney direct-to-video movie to use the new computer-animated Disney logo that was introduced in Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, the year prior in 2006. 
And it was also the first traditionally hand-drawn movie to use it. And this is also the second time that C.D. Barnes, who voices the prince, plays a Disney prince. Because the first time was as Prince Eric in The Little Mermaid. That's kind of a cool one. And even though, as I said already, the movie largely ignores the events of Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True, the character Prudence, played by Holland Taylor, does appear in both movies. And then lastly, Drizella was originally planned to be the stepsister who redeems herself, but Anastasia was decided upon because of how her character was softened in Cinderella 2. And I am really glad that they went down that route. I'll talk more about that later, but I really, really enjoy the redemption arc in this story. And I do think that if it was only going to be one of the sisters and not both of them, that Anastasia was the right choice. Okay, and tackling the movie itself and my favorite moments from it and thoughts that I had while watching it. Uh, at the very beginning, we see Anastasia and Drizella singing a song because uh, it's right near the beginning anyway. It's not the very, very beginning, but it's close to the beginning. We see Anastasia and Drizella singing a song because we see that they're kind of doing the chores around the estate now because Cinderella's no longer there. They can't have her do everything anymore. So it seems like Lady Tremaine has now put her daughters to work. And one of the lyrics that they sing is, why should we have to do the chores? And I'm just thinking, well, why should Cinderella have had to do them? <laughs> now you know what it feels like. Uh, you're getting your just desserts. So not that I'm saying that it's right for Lady Tremaine to be abusive to them, like she was Cinderella. I'm not saying that because abuse just isn't okay. But that's kind of a selfish way of thinking. Like, why should we have to do the chores? Well, were you wondering that when Cinderella was having to do all of them? Were you wondering why she had to? I don't know. I mean, this movie, again, I'll talk more about this as the episode progresses, but this movie gives us a more complex, nuanced vision of Anastasia as a character. And so, Maybe she was having some of those thoughts during the first movie and was just too afraid of her mother to step up and stand up and, you know, say something about it. Uh, maybe. I don't know. And instead of, like, stepping up and saying something, she, as a survival, you know, mechanism, just went along with it. That is definitely a possibility. But anyway, Anastasia goes on to sing very shortly after that, Why Don't I Get a Happy Ending?, and this is one of many examples of how this movie ignores Cinderella 2, because she does get a happy ending in that movie. And I mean, I don't want to spoil that movie, but at the same time, you know, I'm not necessarily telling you that you need to go out and watch that right away. Because like I said, in my opinion, at least, it's not great. <laughs> um, I think it could have been better if it had stuck to one singular story. I think that the anthology thing didn't work for me. And uh, that's just for me, at least partly what made it kind of boring because I would get invested in one story and then that one would be over and I would have to start over from square one with a new story. And I just it didn't feel like a movie because of that. And, you know, I'm kind of like iffy about anthology movies for that reason. You know, like anthology series are one thing, but an anthology movie like a movie is usually meant to be watched in one sitting, not episodically. You know, so it kind of just like takes you out when one story ends and then another one begins. I don't really like that. So I think that's one of the reasons why I didn't care a whole lot for it. But 
one of the stories in that movie is centered on Anastasia meeting and falling in love with somebody. Her mother doesn't approve of it because it's a baker, not, you know, nobility or royalty. And Anastasia and this baker have a happy ending. And, you know, here that's being ignored uh, for the most part. I'll get to something later on in which it is at least referenced. But, yeah, it's pretending that that didn't happen. Uh, and that was actually out of the three stories in that Cinderella sequel. That was definitely the one that I was most invested in. That was the one that I liked the most. So, uh, yeah. But anyway, uh, it isn't long before Anastasia is made sympathetic. Like, they really... It's not, it doesn't take a long time for the movie to start painting her in a new way, to start putting her in a new light and, you know, encouraging us to see her differently. Because uh, almost immediately she, she says, you know, because she sees that the fairy godmother and uh, the prince and Cinderella are having like this outside dinner sort of deal and the fairy godmother is helping to make that happen with magic and... Anastasia says, gee, I wonder if that old lady has a wand that she could spare. And part of the reason why I see that as the movie wanting us to start to empathize a little bit with Anastasia is that, you know, that tells us that Anastasia's in a rough place as well. Like, Lady Tremaine is abusive, and that puts Anastasia and Drizella in a difficult situation as well, you know? And like I said, it's a matter of how much of their cruelty in the first movie is because they are actually cruel people and how much of it is conditioning, how much of it is because of the example that Lady Tremaine has set for them and how much of it. And like I said, in Anastasia's case, I think that this very well is what's going on. How much of it is, you know, just fear, you know, kind of like fear of standing up to her mother and saying this is wrong. You know, even if that's what she's thinking, instead, she's going to play along because that's what she needs to do to survive. So, you know, I think that that could very well be what's going on here. Uh, but, you know, I reference Serena Valentino's books all the time on this podcast. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I there will be episodes in which I don't mention them because they won't be relevant. But as I mentioned in the last episode of the podcast... Serena Valentino does have a book about Lady Tremaine. It's the eighth book in her villain series, and it's called Cold Hearted. And, uh, you know, I mentioned in the last episode that the fairy godmother is a character who shows up quite a bit in those books. She's kind of a recurring character throughout the series. And I really cannot stand her in those books. I cannot stand her. And, uh, you know, if you're in Serena Valentino's world, then... No, the fairy godmother definitely does not have a wand to spare for you. Uh, that's all I'm going to say, because I don't want to spoil that novel in case you do want to read it. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's very unfortunate, but it's partly what, in my opinion at least, makes the fairy godmother a villain in those books. More so than many of the actual villains, you know? But I've seen this movie several times, and for some reason, on this watch of it, I had totally forgotten that, like, the synopsis for this movie, the one that uh, mentions Lady Tremaine stealing the fairy godmother's wand, 
that's not technically accurate even because she's the one who uses it primarily. She kind of claims it for herself and takes possession of it, keeps it on her at all times. But it's not really technically her who steals it from the fairy godmother. It's Anastasia. And I'm kind of confused too as to how the magic wand even works because it seems like anybody can use it. You know, it seems like, I mean, because we see uh, Anastasia use it. We see the fairy godmother use it. We see Cinderella use it. Like, it seems like this magic wand can be used by anybody, which means how much of the magic is the fairy godmother and how much of it is the wand? Because it seems like it's entirely the wand. Is the fairy godmother a magical being or not? Like, <laughs> kind of seems like not. Uh, but it seems like if you have some sort of thought on your mind before using the magic wand, that's what's going to happen. Because there's one part where Anastasia says the magic words, which is, of course, uh, which are, of course, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. And uh, she's playing tug of war with the wand with the fairy godmother. And the magic inadvertently turns Lucifer into part goose. Like he's kind of like part goose, but with a cat's head. And... The fairy godmother had just called Anastasia a silly goose, so that must be why that happened, but it's not technically the fairy godmother who transformed Lucifer, it was Anastasia, like she's the one that said the words, so is it because the fairy godmother had just said silly goose and so that's on her mind now and that's why that happens, like... It's a little bit confusing, but it then goes on to happen again. This time it's a little bit more clear because Anastasia is the one who says the words, but uh, she calls the fairy godmother a silly old garden gnome and then accidentally hits her with the magic and turns her into just that, a garden gnome. And I do have to wonder if maybe Kenneth Branagh's uh, Cinderella live action adaptation from 2015 was inspired by this because there is, of course, a scene in that movie after Cinderella, you know, has her dress torn to pieces and torn to shreds and she is just an absolute wreck and she's sobbing and crying and she feels like she's losing hope and she's losing courage, the fairy godmother shows up essentially as a garden gnome that comes to life. And so that makes me wonder if that was inspired by this. And of course, the magic when Lady Tremaine ultimately gets her hands on the wand and uses it is green. <laughs> that's like it's such a disney villain trope uh that the colors green and purple are very frequently associated with them the magic that they use is usually green uh even in the live action maleficent movie you know i talked about this on the podcast before when i talked about the maleficent movies uh typically when maleficent is using magic that is meant for malevolent purposes it's green and then when she's using magic for good, it's like a yellow, like a gold color. So, yeah, it's just like a Disney villain thing where their magic usually is green. So, yeah, I guess I kind of appreciate that being brought to the forefront here in this scene. And really not just this scene, but multiple times throughout the movie. Because, like, for example, when Lady Tremaine uses the wand to put the prince under a spell, making him think that Anastasia is the one that he danced with at the ball, you see, like, his eyes are green. So, yeah. And then there's one scene after Lady Tremaine has used the wand to reverse time. Uh, you know, it kind of takes us back to the scene at the end of the first Cinderella movie where the Grand Duke shows up for the slipper fitting. And uh, after Anastasia successfully has the slipper fit, because, of course, 
Lady Tremaine uses magic to make that happen. Uh, Lady Tremaine says to Cinderella, uh, you may even have thought it was love, you know, referencing her dance with the prince at the ball. And this is, of course, a reference to the song, So This Is Love, but also, I mean, she kind of does have you there. <laughs> I mean, I referenced this in the last episode. I said, you know, no, it's kind of not love. You literally just met. <laughs> I mean, even at the end of this movie, and I love this movie, but even at the end of this movie, the implication seems to be that Cinderella and the prince have married each other after knowing each other for basically a day. So for a movie that came out in 2007, it doesn't really do a whole lot to rectify, you know, the getting married immediately thing that the classic Disney movies used to portray a lot. But, you know, I still love this movie for what it is. Uh, shortly after that, you know, Cinderella is still holding on to hope because she feels like if she goes to the palace and talks to the prince that he'll remember her. He'll know that it wasn't Anastasia. And she goes out to a field singing the lyrics... There's a better life that's waiting, and I am reminded very much of Belle from Beauty and the Beast, because near the beginning of the movie, uh, you know, we see Belle, like, singing in this big pasture about how, you know, she wants adventure in the great wide somewhere, you know, she wants a life better than the one that she has, so definitely very much reminded of that, uh, and then I do, one thing that I really, really love about this movie is that the prince is a much more developed character. You know, he's not just like a prop like he is in the original Cinderella. In the original Cinderella movie, the prince is really not a character. He's part of the plot. We don't know anything about him. We don't know what his personality is like. He has like maybe two or three lines, you know, like he's just not even a character. But they took a much different approach in this movie. Because he's much more developed, he's funny, he's kind of sarcastic, uh, you know, he, yeah, I just really, really enjoy this character. And there's a scene where he's talking to the king about his plan to find Cinderella, to find the woman that he danced with by having, you know, all of the women in the kingdom try on this glass slipper. And the king says, you know, his father says... You think there's only one woman in the whole kingdom who wears a size four and a half? And yeah, true. <laughs> I do like how it's, you know, kind of bringing up some of the plot holes in the original Cinderella. You know, that it's addressing that. Because, yeah, I mean, in all likelihood, there are going to be multiple women in the kingdom who fit that slipper, you know? So I like how that's being addressed. And the prince says, it's all I have to go on here, you know? Uh... So yeah, like I said, I just really love how this is kind of an attempt to explain that plot hole. It also kind of sort of explains the plot hole of, you know, like, why would he need all these women to try on this shoe? Like, shouldn't he just be able to see her face and recognize her? Like, it does kind of explain that as well. Because he, as soon as he sees Anastasia, he knows that's not the woman he danced with. You know, like he just instantly knows because it doesn't look anything like the woman that he danced with. <laughs> so I kind of appreciate that as well. Uh, but I feel really sorry for Cinderella when she does make it to the palace and she tries to talk to the prince, you know, basically saying like, hey, it's me. Like, do you remember me from when we danced? And uh, he doesn't remember her because at this point, 
Lady Tremaine has used the wand to put him under a spell to make him think that it was Anastasia that he danced with. So he doesn't know who she is, and he basically rejects her and says, you know, it couldn't have been you that I danced with because it was Anastasia that I danced with. And just the heartbreak and look of disappointment on Cinderella's face because she doesn't know yet that the prince is under a spell. She thinks that he just legitimately doesn't remember her. And that's got to be heartbreaking. Like, I feel so sorry for her. And it reminds me a lot of The Little Mermaid because it's kind of a similar scenario in The Little Mermaid where the prince hears Ariel singing. He doesn't really get a good look at her face. He just mostly has her singing to go on. And so that's why Ursula disguises herself as a young woman and steals Ariel's voice because that way she can pretend that she's the woman that was singing. And uh, yeah, I'm just really reminded of that. And Anastasia trying to dance with the prince and royally, no pun intended, failing uh, is funny. But, you know, it's also like, okay, she's really unpoised. That's one of her character traits is that she doesn't have a lot of poise and grace. But also, why is she dancing with two different shoes? I can't imagine it's easy to dance with two different shoes on, especially when they're of different heights. So, yeah. Uh, but shortly after that, Anastasia says, he was nice to me. And this is where we really, truly start to see her soften. And this is so sad. This is so heartbreaking to me. Because, yeah, I mean, like I said, that to me kind of explains why Anastasia is so rotten in the first movie. Because that's the only model that she's had. You know, like, that's how she's been treated her whole life. Lady Tremaine has very likely been cruel and unkind to her and has said some very terrible things to her, you know, and uh, yeah, that's all she's known. And so for somebody to be truly kind to her is just eye-opening for her. And that's so sad. That's so heartbreaking. It just goes to show that, like I said, you know, in the first movie, especially if you watch this movie and take it as canon, you know, it really reframes things from the first movie. It makes you realize that Anastasia was just as much a victim as Cinderella was in a lot of ways. And I love how one of the major lessons that Anastasia learns and that I think the movie is also trying to teach the audience is that there's a big difference between like sentimental and emotional value and monetary value. And, you know, because like, you could, for example, have a uh, like a necklace or a bracelet or a ring or something that is wildly expensive because it's made out of a really rare jewel or something, you know. But if you have no emotional attachment to that, then it doesn't really truly have any value, you know. It's like, yes, it has monetary value, but that's really all you care about is the money aspect of it. You don't care about any meaning behind it. You don't care about who gave it to you, you know. It's not anything special, really. Whereas, you know, the king, he grabs this uh, this little box. And it looks like, based on the appearance of the box, that what's inside of it is very expensive. And he goes to give it to Anastasia as a gift. And Anastasia gets all excited because she sees how beautiful the box looks and everything. And then when he opens it and reveals that it's just a seashell, she looks kind of disappointed at first. But then, after he explains to her why it's important to him and what's so significant about it to him, she seems really touched by it. And she realizes that this is significant and this is a really beautiful gift to give to me. But I do find it funny how 
Anastasia in this movie actually does have a decent singing voice because she does sing a couple of songs in the movie. And where was that in the first one? Because <laughs> in the first one, you know, you have that scene of her and Drizella practicing that Oh Sweet Nightingale song and they sound terrible, you know? So maybe, I'm just throwing this out there as a possibility, maybe that was one of Anastasia's ways of fighting back. That was one of her ways of spiting her mother was deliberately singing terribly. <laughs> just a possibility. Uh... And we also see Anastasia start to feel guilty about what's happening, uh, you know, about what they're doing. And she says to her mother, she says to Lady Tremaine, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. And we also, over the course of the movie, see this development where she realizes that it's not enough to just have somebody love her. She wants somebody to love her for who she is. She wants somebody to accept her for who she is. She doesn't want to be loved by somebody who thinks that she's somebody else. And there's a scene where Cinderella tries to steal back the wand from Lady Tremaine and uh, fails because Lady Tremaine instantly knows who she is. Like, she tries to disguise herself as a maid in the palace uh, by putting, like, this bonnet over her head and, you know, trying to cover her face and her head. And Lady Tremaine doesn't fall for it. She almost immediately realizes that it's Cinderella, which is interesting because in the first movie— she didn't seem to recognize her, like, you know, at the ball. Like, she did acknowledge that, you know, there's something familiar about her, but she wasn't like, that's Cinderella. Like, <laughs> you know, which she really should have, because Cinderella was not covering her face at all, you know? But anyway, not important at the end of the day, but uh, yeah, she does instantly recognize her here. And I think that that might have even been the movie's way of trying to rectify that from the first movie, even though it really doesn't, because it doesn't undo that or really even explain it. It just gives us a new situation where it's like, this time she does recognize her. And there's also a scene where, you know, because again, Lady Tremaine instantly recognizes her, so it doesn't work. And she tries to get Cinderella arrested and banished and removed from the kingdom, basically, for being a thief. Because the palace just thinks that Cinderella is, like, hired help. They think that she's just, like, a maid. Uh, initially, Cinderella pretends to be the royal rat catcher. Uh, and then she disguises herself as a maid. And Lady Tremaine demands that because she tried to steal from her, she be removed from the castle and banished from the kingdom. And there are a couple of, like, guards in the castle. A few guards that are trying to catch Cinderella. And Lady Tremaine screams at them, you incompetent fools. And I have to say, yeah, spoken like a true Disney villain. <laughs> because it's just a thing. Like, there's even a meme. If I can find the meme, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, There's a meme that shows just how often Disney villains use fools as an insult. It's almost like a Disney villain rite of passage. And then... The mice decide to take it upon themselves to try to save the day by informing the prince what is happening. And when he realizes that the mice are talking to him, it's kind of funny because he's alarmed by the fact that mice are talking to him, which, yeah, I mean, that's totally understandable. I would be alarmed by that as well. But he never questions the fact that they have clothes, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But, uh, you know, he says, okay, first birds, now mice. 
And he seems kind of disturbed and unsettled, which, again, definitely reasonable. I feel like I would be, too, uh, because that's not something that happens every day, which is the point that I'm trying to get to, because it goes to show that this must be something that's pretty exclusive for some reason to Disney princesses, that animals don't just interact with and talk to just anybody. For some reason, this is just a special thing with the Disney princesses. Uh, and like I think I've said on the podcast before, two of my favorite Disney movies, Enchanted and Disenchanted, even kind of poke fun at this trope. And then once the prince does find out what's actually happening, he tries to, you know, kind of catch the ship and get Cinderella off it before it leaves. And so he leaves the palace and... He says that I need to go, and his father, the king, says, go, but you're about to be married. And the prince says, but the talking mice say she's the wrong girl. <laughs> and it just, it is great, because, like, can you imagine being the king and thinking, my son is losing it. He's losing his mind. You know, he then goes on to say, like, this is ridiculous. Now, you agreed to marry the girl in the glass slipper. I was completely with you on that one. And the prince says, and I will just as soon as I find her. And the king then says, I forbid you to take another step down these stairs. And the prince pauses and says, okay. <laughs> because he then, <laughs> this is one of the scenes that just perfectly exemplify why I love the prince in this movie. Um, instead of going any farther down the stairs, because his father is standing in front of him on the stairs, he jumps out the window. <laughs> and this like, this whole dynamic just really, really reminds me of Philip and King Hubert from Sleeping Beauty. I think that I even alluded to this movie when I talked about that, saying that, you know, Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time, like really, really fleshed out the prince and made him a character and gave him a personality and made him funny. And, you know, I think I remember saying that I wish that we had gotten a Sleeping Beauty sequel that did something similar with Philip because I think that that would have been great. But when all else fails, Lady Tremaine's ultimate plan is to use the magic wand to disguise Anastasia as Cinderella, to have her look exactly like Cinderella so that the prince will marry her, thinking that it's Cinderella. But this plan doesn't really make much sense to me because... The reason that Lady Tremaine wants one of her daughters to be married to the prince is so that by blood, she will be royalty. I would imagine that she would probably be like the queen regent or something to that extent. And she wants that kind of recognition. She wants that power. She wants that title. And she doesn't want Cinderella to get that because Cinderella is not her biological daughter. And so she probably wouldn't get that same recognition. So how does this solve anything? Like, what's the difference between just letting Cinderella marry the prince and having Anastasia marry the prince with the prince thinking that it's Cinderella? You know what I mean? Like, I don't see the difference there. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense because at the end of the day, it's still going to be on paper that it's Cinderella who's married to the prince, not Anastasia. Even if it really is Anastasia, nobody other than you knows that. So I don't understand what her plan is here. But anyway, I also wonder where she plans to say Anastasia is. Because after a while, somebody's going to say, like, didn't you have two daughters? Where's the other one? <laughs> you know, like, where's the one that the prince was going to marry? Where'd she go? You know, so it just doesn't seem like a great plan. But 
Lady Tremaine actually does try to have Cinderella killed in this. Like, this is definitely a much darker movie than the original Cinderella. Because in the original Cinderella, I'm not saying that Lady Tremaine wasn't a villain. She absolutely was. But, you know, she's just vain and cruel and emotionally abusive. But she's not an attempted killer. And I think that that is one thing that does differentiate her from other Disney villains is that a lot of Disney villains do at the very least, they don't usually succeed, but they do at the very least try to kill somebody. But Lady Tremaine, she doesn't really ever get physically violent or try to have somebody killed, but here she does. Like she makes it very clear. She uses her magic to transport Cinderella into a pumpkin coach, a very dangerous one that Lucifer is essentially driving because she yeah, I mean, she has Lucifer basically driving the carriage and uh, tells him, make it absolutely certain that they do not come back here alive, talking about Cinderella and the mice. So she actually is like an attempted murderer in this movie. So they really made her much more evil in this movie, much more sinister. And I kind of like that. I think that that was bold. That was a bold decision to make, to kind of like change our perspective on this classic, iconic Disney villain and make us see her a little bit differently. I think that that was bold. But then Lady Tremaine's plans fail once again, and this time it's in large part because of Anastasia. Like, Anastasia is probably the ultimate hero of this movie, I would argue, because she gives up so much at the end because she knows that it's the right thing to do. And she possibly for the first time in her life realizes the importance of being selfless and empathetic. And it's beautiful. Like it's just by far my favorite aspect of this movie is Anastasia's redemption arc because she is about to get married to the prince, you know, looking like Cinderella because of the spell. And, uh, you know, instead of saying I do, she says, I don't. And the look of surprise on Cinderella's face, like Anastasia, she says her name and has this look of shock on her face. And I love this look so much because it says so much. First of all, wow, I wasn't expecting you to do the right thing in the end. And also, I feel really sorry for you. Look at what you're giving up. Like, she's showing empathy, which of course is one of the things that makes Cinderella such a memorable character for a lot of people. You know, why she has endured for as long as she has, because she's such an epitome of kindness and compassion, something that I think that the live action movie really hammered home even harder. And when she and Anastasia hug, one of the reasons that I love this movie as much as I do is the warm feelings that it gives me. I just... I feel all warm inside when that hug happens. It's just so beautiful because it's almost like it's rewriting history, you know, like it's one of the reasons that I've talked about it on the podcast before. One of the reasons that I love the Angelina Jolie Maleficent movies as much as I do, especially the first one, because that scene of Maleficent being the one to awaken Aurora is so beautiful because it's just this rewriting of history. You look at the classic Cinderella movie and Anastasia is terrible. She's awful. Like she's mean. She's cruel. She says all sorts of terrible things to Cinderella. Uh, and 
she has a hand in ripping up her dress and she's a spoiled brat because there's a scene where, you know, I mentioned this in the last episode where she and Drizella are like throwing like beads and sashes and stuff like that to the floor saying that it's junk. They don't want it. It doesn't look good. You know, stuff like that. They're spoiled brats. And then for them to show us a different Anastasia in this movie that ends up, you know, redeeming herself, doing the right thing and hugging is just beautiful, you know, and the second movie also did redeem Anastasia. But like I said, this movie's kind of more or less pretending that that didn't happen. So, you know, I really, as I've said already, I think of this as being the true sequel to Cinderella. And then Anastasia tries to give the seashell back to the king that he gave to her. And this is also powerful and beautiful because it shows what I was talking about before, that she recognizes how valuable this is. She says, I don't deserve this, you know, and it's a seashell. It's not a diamond or a jewel. It doesn't have any monetary value, really. And yet she's still feeling like I don't deserve this. She sees that much value in it to feel that she doesn't deserve it. And so it really shows that she's learned the meaning of emotional and sentimental value. But the king lets her keep it, though. Another beautiful scene. You know, he lets her keep it and says, everybody deserves true love. Because that's kind of what that seashell has come to be a symbol of in this movie is love. And then in the end credit sequence of the movie, uh, we do see a portrait of Anastasia and the baker from Cinderella 2, Dreams Come True, implying that even in this timeline, she did end up with her baker. So that makes me really, really happy because like I said, that is by far my favorite part from the second Cinderella movie is Anastasia's love story with the baker. And the fact that they kind of sort of still incorporated that into this movie and showed us that, yeah, Anastasia really wants to be loved, but she wants to be loved for who she is. Remember that that did happen in Anastasia too. And we're saying that in this timeline, it ultimately still happened as well. So I really, really like that, that she also gets a happy ending. So yeah, that is Cinderella 3, A Twist in Time. And as far as my rating is concerned, I mean, I think I've already said more than once that I love this movie. So, uh, you know, I don't think that this rating is going to come as a surprise to anybody because I've already given it away <laughs> how much I love it. Uh, but one of the challenges of rating or discussing a sequel, a reboot, a remake, anything like that, is that it's very difficult, if not impossible, to talk about it on its own without doing some sort of comparison or cross-referencing, you know, to the source material. And I do have to say that the music here is weak. That's like one of the few pitfalls of this movie, is that the music is not great. The songs I'm talking about especially. Uh, there's just nothing in this movie that I'm probably going to have stuck in my head after I watch it. Like, I think the best song is probably the one that the mice sing to the prince to explain to him what's really going on. That's probably my favorite one, but even that's not really much of an earworm, you know, and just nothing comes even remotely close to the magic of a dream is a wish your heart makes. So in that sense, the original movie does have a leg up over this one. The music is much, much better. Uh, other than that, though, I mean, to me... This is a huge improvement over the original Cinderella movie. And I know that for some people that's going to be like a blasphemous opinion, but I do feel a little bit validated and vindicated even because 
I was on, and I can put a link to this in the show notes for you, but I was on the app TV Time recently and was reading the comments that people had posted about this movie, and a lot of people were saying that they absolutely love this movie, and some of them were even saying that they prefer it to the original. And it just really felt validating to me, because that's exactly how I feel, and I feel like for a lot of Disney fans, that would be like a sacrilegious, blasphemous opinion to have, to feel that a direct-to-video sequel to an iconic classic Disney movie, you know, to believe that that is better would just be blasphemous, you know? So uh, it felt kind of vindicating to see a lot of other people saying that as well. But yeah, I mean, this is a huge improvement over Cinderella 2, but it's also an improvement over the first one, uh, you know, because like I've already said, they really amp up Lady Tremaine's villainy. Um, they give Cinderella more agency. She has a more fleshed out personality. And the prince definitely does, as I've already mentioned. Um, he's a much more important central character. And he has a much more fully developed personality. Um, you know, and the story arc is just much more interesting to me. Um, and I love, 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 I've already mentioned this. I love Anastasia's redemption arc. I tend to be a sucker for redemption stories, um, and I just really, really loved that aspect of this movie. It's my favorite part of it, in fact. And I also do really like the time travel element, you know? I mean, I do really enjoy some sci-fi, and that tends to be something that sci-fi does a lot, is time travel, going back in time, resetting time, you know, that sort of thing. And this movie plays with that, even though it's not sci-fi, it's fantasy. Uh, but the animation's also really wonderful for a movie that went direct-to-video, because a lot of the direct-to-video uh, Disney sequels, like, there are a lot of them that I actually really do love and enjoy. Like, unpopular opinion, but I really like Return to Neverland. I really like Return of Jafar and King of Thieves. Uh, you know, some of them are really good, in my opinion, but even the ones that are really good, oftentimes the animation isn't great. Return of Jafar and King of Thieves are great examples of that because I think that those are really great movies, but the animation is very much like a Saturday morning cartoon, <laughs> you know? It doesn't feel like a feature presentation animation style, uh, but here, the animation is actually really, really good, you know? It feels like a movie that could have been in theaters, so I give this movie a 9 out of 10, you know? Uh, I just love this movie. I... I just love it. <laughs> it makes me feel things. It is adorable. Uh, you know, I love Anastasia's redemption and just, yeah. Um, I've seen this movie several times and I'll probably see it several more. So really great movie. I would love to hear from you though. I mean, what do you think of this movie? If you've seen it, uh, what would you like me to cover in the future? Do you have recommendations for movies or shows that you would like me to talk about anything that you want to share with me at all? Really? Uh, please do reach out to me by emailing disneyshpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash disneyshpodcast. Follow the Instagram page at disneyshpodcast. And you can also follow my personal Instagram page, which is the lost passenger. If you're not subscribed already, please do subscribe because that way when a new episode drops, you will know. And next up on the podcast is... Into the Woods, which is also kind of sort of a Cinderella adaptation, so I'm staying on this train right now. Uh, but until next time, this has been Disney reminding you that everybody deserves true love. Disney.